Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Political Soapbox, of course, with myself, Tom McDonough, and of course, with my awesome co-host, uh, John Troxel. And, you know, it's always good. To hey, Tom, how are you? Good <laughs> to be here. Good. We got a special guest tonight, you know, and um, we've had some great shows so far. But, uh, you know, I want to introduce our guest tonight. He's a really close friend of mine, a guy that I had the, sp- the opportunity to spend my last four years on active duty with his last four years. He served as the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Command Senior Enlisted Leader, a 35-year Marine, Sergeant Major, retired, Anthony Spud Spadaro. Spuds, welcome to the Political Soapbox, brother. Hey, aloha, Siak. Aloha, Tom. Man, hey, hey, like I said, if I'm saying aloha, you know I'm in the beautiful state of Hawaii. Even though we're a little bit under rainy conditions, we're still this <laughs> island paradise. So, hey, aloha to you, too, and, and the Political Soapbox. Is aloha to you, and of course, it does. Yeah, I know you said it's been raining there, but normally it's an island paradise. That's right, <laughs> and, and, and you know, and, and some of you have been here, so you can attest to how nice it is here. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely. it definitely is. It, it is the um, bastion of people's vacation. Uh, well, you, you, know, you know, too, we really we're going through a very special week right now. So, you know, tomorrow we're going to be commemorating. I don't say celebrate because we don't celebrate tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're going to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which occurred here on, you know, about almost eight o'clock in the morning, that one Sunday morning. Um, We have survivors here. We have actual Pearl Harbor survivors, uh, national treasures. We have some of the World War II um, men and women that served during that time, and we get to fet them. And and again, this is the 80th, um, you know, and every year, I mean, most of the the survivors right now are are 100, 102, 104. And they said, you know, we're talking about the parade and it might be raining tomorrow. And the one guy said, hey, I survived this Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. You think a little rain's going to bother me? I mean, I mean, that's just the resiliency of just you got to love them. So that's what we get to do tomorrow. And that's what this week is. So it's a really it's it's a solemn week. And that's why I always like to take away when I hear let's let's have the celebration. This was not a celebration. This was an attack. Yeah. So it's it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, um, because Pearl Harbor kicked off World War Two, uh, the U.S. Uh, involvement in World War Two and one of the most contentious uh, operating environments we've ever been in. And now here we are 80 years later and we got you on tonight because, you know, the Pacific is another contentious area again. Mm-hmm. And now the People's Republic of China and the, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, is uh, the number one pacing challenge in the words of our Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, the number one pacing challenge for the United States. So we want to talk China with you tonight, Spuds. Can you kind of talk through um, what you've been doing yeah. uh, to stay, you know, in the loop and and still being relevant in the Indo-Pacific area, and especially when it comes to China, what you've been doing sure. lately? Yeah, you know, and and and, and Tom, I, I hope you know this. This was when you know John's role when he was our senior enlisted advisor, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, and yeah. and again, I, I was privileged to be one of the people that got to serve along for and alongside John. But one of the things he used to push us on is our relevance. And, and, and we held this great rank in, as senior enlisted leader in respective militaries. And a lot of times, though, you know, some of those guys would be deemed um, haircuts and cigarette butts. And that's what they really worried about. But then you come along, you know, John Troxell comes along and, and those that would serve alongside him. He wanted to push us. 
And, and of course, he said, you could go ahead and be a cigarette butts and haircut guys. You could give coins out to people and you could just be ineffective. And, and, and of course, we have some other fun terms for that. But literally, you were ineffective to him because what was our role? We were supposed to be key advisors to our commanders. And when you look at our, the depth and breadth of our commanders, these were the combatant commanders that were going to sit there and really decide who's going to go fight today for our nation and who's going to be the most ready. But again, a lot of them had to be strategists. They had to be deep thinkers. Well, in our key roles as, as command senior enlisted leaders, we had to provide that advice. Well, we had to be, to John's point, we had to be relevant. Or one of his famous terms is, have we validated our credentials daily? It's a good and one. We had to, and we had to be cognizant of validating those credentials. And it just wasn't because I thought I was a good looking one there. No, it had to be basically, was I up to the same speed or faster to what my commander was thinking about? Because a lot of times, and, and John and I did have the privilege to serve alongside commanders that did seek our opinions. They weren't seeking our opinions about the sale at the PX. No, they were wondering what would be the long-term effects on the men and women that were going to be doing the fighting. So we had to become students. We had to be pacers. We had to be thinkers about this. And that was John really pushing us. And, and, and thankfully, John served with some pretty cool people at the time, one being General Joseph Dunford, our chairman, and the other being Secretary of Defense, James Mattis. You know what's really cool? When John would give me a call and say, hey, Spuds, I need you to provide. I'm going to give you five questions. I need you to put something together. I need you to put your thoughts together. And oh, by the way, for real, I'm forwarding to the secretary. And when you know it, John would get in touch with us a month later. And there was the secretary's <laughs> open-handed, freehand notes on all the things we had to provide for. And it would cause questions again. So where I'm going with this little, you know, cornucopia of thoughts I just thrown at you was mm -hmm. this is where we're trying to see where you have to be relevant. And, and, and I got to give kudos to, to my brother, John, for forcing us to be relevant. This is why I end up here in the Indo-Pacific. This is why I stayed here. And this is why now I'm involved, particularly at either the university level or at a think tank providing this information now to the diplomatic and military, the diplomatic core of the Pacific Island countries right now, and to various militaries within the Indo-Pacific structure as an independent thinker. So if you notice here, I'm not in uniform. I'm in Mufti. And so now I still have to prove myself relevant. Um, and it can't be, you know, yesterday's ideas. What's the future going to hold? And, and again, now that we're out of uniform, we're allowed some ability to be independent in our thinking. You know, we don't have to have the moniker, you know, you know, this has been screened and John knows this all too well by layers of lawyers that would say this was be allowed that we're about to talk about. Yeah. Well, now, yeah. though, you just can't sit there, though, and spout, you know, fake news, so to say, or you're not going to be worthy. And again, too, or something that, you know, so I guess what I used to say all the time, Tom, was I'm sitting next to the secretary of defense, the chairman and all of the senior staff officers on either the joint staff or the office of the secretary of defense. And we're talking about a strategic issue like we're going to talk about tonight, China or something like that. And I had to give something of relevance to that conversation. I couldn't. We're talking at the most strategic level. And for me to be irrelevant in a hurry when they came to me to say, hey, what input do you have? It can't be something that's happening six layers below that is happening at the tactical level that has no relevance at the strategic level.
which means that guys like Spuds and I and all the other senior enlisted, we had to up our game to be yeah. better advisors to the people we work for. And in my case, it was the chairman and the sector. So, Tom, tonight we got Spuds on here. We want to talk <laughs> about China, brother, something, uh, you know, that's really been on our mind. And we've had discussions on our previous shows. Uh, so, uh, you know, the first thing I want to start off with, Tom, is, uh, you know, there's an old Chinese proverb, Spuds. And this kind of gets after this 100-year marathon that I know you wrote a paper about and everything. Yeah. And it's the proverb says, never ask the weight of the emperor's cauldrons. Because, you know, you know, in ancient Chinese times, you know, two of these ruling, uh, you know, guys, one of the guys that wanted to take over the other guy asked him, you know, about, you know, how much his cauldrons weight. And the bottom line was the proverb is don't let the enemy know that you're a rival and it's until it's too late for them to do anything. Mm -hmm. So my question to you right off the bat is. 1949, the Hundred Year War begins, or Hundred Year Marathon begins for China. Here we are; we're almost three quarters of the way into it. Um, are we too late in asking the weight of the emperor's cauldrons? Where are we at in this, in terms of competitive advantages, and you know, with China? That's a good question. Wow. All right. You went right across the top, like you're typical of being the SEAC. <laughs> What we need to do as a nation is literally wake up and realize there's a boogeyman again. And the boogeyman is called the People's Republic of China. They are now, like you said, you mentioned the hundred year, it's a hundred years of tears that they've been experiencing right now. And a lot of people are using the benchmark date of 2049. Well, now you're being unrealistic because there, to your point, if they want us to think that it's going to happen in 2049, it will be too late. I'm yeah. saying start worrying about in 2025, 2029, not 2049. That's disingenuous. And at this point, we'll be lulled to sleep. Again, another Chinese proverb. How you're going to go and take across your, your enemy is to lull them to sleep or to win before fighting. And that's quoting the typified of Sun Tzu, the great philosopher. Where we have to go with this, though, and I said it's a chance to, we need to wake up as a nation. We are now sitting there in this, I don't know what attitude or opinion or thought process to the People's Republic of China. So let's use a couple illustrative things all over the world. Now, John, if you remember our days in uniforms, I used to like to call myself the Cliff Clavin of, you know, military factoids or what went on in the yeah. Indo-Pacific. And I hope our audience knows who Cliff Clavin is. But I want to bring your awareness to a couple of things. For instance, right now, everyone's all excited about this movie coming out, probably at Christmas time, called Top Gun or the redo of Top Gun, and Top Gun is back. Now, if you all remember, let's, let's go back and look at history. In 1986, Top Gun came out. Man, I mean, look, it was the greatest recruiting effort, not only for the Navy, but hell, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Air Force. We got everyone excited again about the military. And even think about those movies then where they're getting people excited. We had Top Gun. And who they go against? The Soviets. And, and they had a big fight against the Soviets and were victorious. Okay, Cliff Clavin time. If you look at Tom Cruise, he had that really cool leather jacket on. The back of that leather jacket was four flags. 
And if you look and if you remember the movie, the back of it, it was a U.S. flag. It was a U.N. flag. And the lower left was a Japanese flag. And in the lower right was the Republic of China's flag, or as we call Taiwan. Yeah. You look at when this Top Gun comes out and Tom Cruise puts that same leather jacket back on. You'll see those four flags. You'll see the U.S. flag. You'll see the U.N. flag. And I don't know what the heck they've blurred the two flags to the bottom of the bay because China found out. And China's like, no way are you going to have this on a movie that we're putting 10% of our investment monies into. No way. Well, yeah. wait a minute. This isn't your movie. <laughs> this is our movie. This is showing the United States Navy. But you can make a decision to blur out two flags of Japan and Taiwan. Hey, I'm a little concerned here. Or let's move even more. We have NBA stars that think it's okay to say China, good. Oh, wow. They're not saying about the 90 million Yurgus right now that are doing the slave labor that are making these NBA stars sneakers. Oh, no, yeah. we don't mention that. Or let's talk about today. Today, our, our, our president mentions that, hey, we're not going to send a diplomatic mission to the Winter Olympics that would be hosted by Beijing. What type of response is that? Just not a diplomatic mission when the nefarious activities of the People's Republic of China over the last couple of years, that's okay. We're talking about encroached seas in the South China Seas. We're talking about going after Philippine and, and, and Vietnamese coast guards to deny their fishery rights. Oh, what about Hong Kong? Oh, what about what's going in Taiwan? And we're going to come back to Taiwan because it's an issue. But what about the, 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 the Muslim issues that they have Muslims in, 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 in prison camps right now? No one makes mention of that. Oh, that's OK. When is the American public? Because, John, if you remember, when we served anytime the Soviet Union stubbed our toes. Boy, that made the front pages of the news and we're going after China yeah, does something, yeah, yeah. And, and we avoid it. You know, I mean, we're, and I hope we, we touch on it and you bring up the subject that, of our chance when we did the historic move, you and I, of, of the yeah. first, you know, military, you know, representing our bosses in the Taiwan. But, yeah. but where, where are we all to this? And I hope we have a discussion on this is that when are we going to wake up as a public and realize the People's Republic of China is a nefarious state of, of affairs that are really, they don't want to cooperate. They do not want to cooperate on the world stage. And that's where we have to have awareness. Yeah, they're a much difficult uh, country on trying to get them a diplomatic, um, anything a diplomatic. They seem to be um, very gung-ho for their way and only way. And it, this shows up in economics. This shows up militarily. This shows up with, the like you said, mentioning the, the, the Taiwan um, and currently with the incursions into Taiwan's airspace is a clear-cut showing of how China, the China or the PRC wants to handle business. You know, it's funny too. You know, I know that you had previous, you had president Reagan's son on, on a, on a, on one of your podcasts, which is just brilliant, but it's, let's even look at what we're going through now. And, and, and John's going to grit his teeth when he remembers this part is we're still under continuing resolutions. 
This is our budgets under another continuing resolution. And the more you delay with a continuing resolution, I was looking at the last facts, it can mean the difference of about $45 billion into our budget when you delay on that. Well, you know what $45 billion out of a budget doesn't buy? It doesn't buy advanced um, uh, artificial intelligence technology. It doesn't match hypersonic technologies that we need yeah. to, to keep pacing with China. China's laughing every time we have a CR because you know what they don't have in the People's Republic of China? They don't have CRs. But we sit there and we recognize these continuing resolutions over and over again, which actually, you know, John and I were through the years when we had small budgets. And all of a sudden we were awash with a lot of money in the Department of Defense. All that money was for was for catch up money. It wasn't putting us on a pace with the enemy right now. And, and, and that's why, I mean, where are we going to sit there and recognize every time we allow our, our political leadership to allow a continuing resolution, it hurts. It hurts every, every aspect, of course, the budgetary process, but particularly in our avenues that John and I were familiar with, the Department of Defense. And this allows China to sit there and gain ahead of us. So if we're going back, where are we in this pace well, you want another continuing resolution? We go one step backwards in trying to keep pace with China. And that's why John's point, 2049, will be here in 2029. So for the rest of the, the, the wonderful American, the American and worldwide audience that don't know what a continued resolution means, what does it truly mean? <laughs> Well, John, you used to deal with that seats, man. I was hiding yeah. over here. You got to deal with that directly, brother. So we don't have it's so a, a an approved budget hasn't come through. Um, so we will continue on with an interim budget for a certain period of time. Meaning, it could be for a couple of days, could be for two weeks, could be for a month. But it allows the government to keep funding uh, and operating. Um, while we figure out the uh, ins and outs of why um, we're not coming to agreement on uh, the budget, the, the annual budget for not only the nation, but for Defense Department and, and others in the cabinet. So all it is is, all right, well, it's an extension. Uh, and as Spuds just stated, it's not going to be all the money that we would need. There would be a deficit in there, but it's an extension that will allow us to continue to negotiate to finalize the budget. And there was, you know, uh, there's still a lot of concern that, uh, you know, if, if at a certain point, if a CR runs out and we don't come to decision, we don't have another CR where the government shuts down. And then, uh, you know, then there's no, uh, uh, you know, money going to the Defense Department or any of these other departments, which could be a huge problem. Um, hey, let's let's talk about what's happened in the news here lately with China. Yeah. So their predatory economics, um, mm-hmm. you know, and the Belt Road Initiative and what they're doing around the world. Let's look at Africa. Yeah. So they gave uh, Uganda a uh, huge loan, you know, for infrastructure and all kinds of stuff. But they also gave them an exorbitant, uh, you know, interest rate and, uh, and so when Uganda defaulted on the loan, guess what? The Chinese own the international airport in Entebbe now. And then let's look at something a little closer, um, the country of Djibouti, where we have a U.S. base, you know, uh, uh, Camp Lamagne. And, you know, again, their predatory economic approach, they came in, gave a huge loan to the Djiboutians uh, when they defaulted on the loan. 
they weaponized terrain there. And now there's a Chinese naval base there. And now there's concerns that the Chinese may be building a, uh, a, another Navy base on the Western side of Africa on the Atlantic side, which would mean they would be an even bigger threat. So the direction with this belt road initiative, you know, and then, you know, three years ago, they tried to buy the Panama Canal, you know, yeah. well, and both just think if the Chinese owned the Panama Canal, what that would have done to world trade, let alone the United States. Yeah. So your thoughts on this Bell Road initiative, brother? Yeah. Wow. OK. Well, first off, I just do a slight correction with you. We're going to change that term to one belt, one road. And the reason why okay. I'm saying that is a lot of times you see in the press the Belt Road Initiative. Well, that's that's a Chinese manufactured word because, you know what, yeah. if you do the Chinese actual Mandarin interpretation, it doesn't even come near to Belt Road Initiative. And that's what some of our press has done because it makes it sound nice. Yeah. We, on the other time, we're going to take the term one belt, one road. And, and again, all roads lead back to Beijing. So first off, when you think of it from the role from the PRC, this is literally brilliant. They're going to take those old trade routes that Marco Polo actually brought in. They're going to reverse it, take everything all the way to Europe and bring everything back to Beijing. Brilliant. If you think, okay, wow, the problem is they're not sharing along the way and they're doing things called debt trap diplomacy. They're doing the nefarious economic trades. So literally it started Right in that periphery of all those Indo-Pacific nations, particularly they branched out all the way, first off was Sri Lanka. So you talk about this country, Sri Lanka, that had this beautiful port area. All of a sudden, China said, you know what? We want to come into this Hanatoba port. We want to sign this 100-year lease with you, and we want to redevelop it. But it's going to cost you. And again, what happened one day, the bill came due. They couldn't pay for it. And they said, hey, look, you defaulted on the contract. We own it. Now, I really think the PRC has been watching the episodes of Sopranos that were happening in the early 2000s because they kind of figured out how to do this. But, but now, again, to the brilliance of the PRC, the One Belt, One Road initiative. Oh, wait, oh, hold on. Let me let me. So what you're saying is if these countries can't pay the, the VIG that, uh, you know, China being the number one Shylock in the world, much yeah. like uh, the Soprano crime family, that they're going to own it. They're going to take over Davy Scortino's, you know, sporting goods right there and it's over. <laughs> um, you know, but but it was brilliant in the execution because now what they did with Sri Lanka, they started controlling ports that are close to a very valuable, influential, important ally in the nation, India, because they can't reach in India. India has no love, lo- love for the People's Republic of China. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But again, If you notice when the PRC said, man, we made it all the way up to, but not to the Suez Canal, we can't get a foothold there, thankfully, when they're trying to take over all these ports. They said, wow, the next part, though, is we need Africa. Why? They need the natural resources and minerals that are contained throughout there, particularly the byproducts that make batteries for electronics. Again, with their debt trap diplomacy, they did something different. So, for example... When the PRC went into Sri Lanka, and and John, remember, I was over there a bunch of times. What we kept hearing is that the the PRC brought three things to Sri Lanka, ports, problems, and prostitutes. Now, I'm not saying that tongue in cheek. I'm saying that they actually, amen, if you're talking to Sopranos here, they're not even using the local market to 
take care of all the workers that were there to build things. You know, Sri Lanka was like, wait a minute, where's the workers involved for us? Well, got some negative news. Well, the PRC is not stupid. When they went into Africa, they used African workers instead of Chinese workers there. So now they're like, well, wait a minute. The, the, the African nations are saying, hey, uh, you're taking care of us. Now, again, the workers getting paid $2 a day, but they're getting paid and it looks good on paper. But it allowed them to get influential holds throughout Africa where the needed natural resources are. But everyone competes for these natural resources, not just China, the U.S., countries in Europe, countries in the world. Everyone's going after the same one. But. If you control the note now, you're going to have to kick up to the PRC. Yeah. Even worse now is there are moves in 17 nations in South America now that have similar natural resourcings or timber. That's a thing that, that you have to look at. China's going after things. China doesn't have these things. China's a, a thirsty country. They don't have natural water. They only have a very small area for natural water. They've got to feed their people. They're hungry. So when you look at it from the perspective of China, do you blame them going there? No. Problem is China doesn't want to share. And that's their issue is they don't want to share. But even more foretelling is why are they not getting involved with, say, India? Well, just look at the geography of India right there. And if you look at the top part of India, there's four bordering nations to that area. India, Pakistan, China, and part of the Russian republics. Well, you know what they all have? Nuclear weapons. And you're talking an area the size of Wyoming for this depth. Well, that's how close that nuclear weapons are pointed. So that's why China is very smart when they said, or their People's Liberation Navy, we'll go down to, we'll go down to Sri Lanka, but we're not going to push anything more because that might become tenuous. But it's still along the ways. The Maldives now have a very, uh, a, a bunch of, Chinese investors in there, but I'll really make your guys' cookies go crazy. So, Tom, you're in Jacksonville. Yep. Well, you know, off to the east of you, you have a little island that's pretty cool called the uh, Bahamas. Bahamas, yep. Oh, yeah. You know who's there? Right yeah. You know who's built hotels there? Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Investment? In or is it close to very close to our area in the United States. It's very, it's but smart. People don't recognize this. Yeah. And that's the fear, you know, going back to John, how you got me started on this diatribe or this soapbox is that when are people going to wake up with these tentacles of growth that, like I said, that one belt, one road was supposed to look from an expansion from Beijing to Europe. It's a tentacle approach all over the world. Even more so, what you have to start even start worrying about is the Arctic Ocean. That's next. Now, if you look at, the One Belt, One Road initiative, it has been an initiative that's been started by both Russia and China together, building companies that have bought out agriculture, mining, the utilities, anything that has a production for what would be the commonalities of what we need in, in as a country to thrive. Both yeah. of them have actually invested together and have done a great job. Now, China seems to have the, the quartering market on it, but they were smart in how they did it. So they've gone after every single part. You're right. And pulled together in 70 countries so far that we know of and, and expanding. You're right. Not counting the ones that were going into South America. And you're right. They're starting with South America and Central America. But with the 
with what happened today with between the Russians and the, or it might've been yesterday between the Russians and in India on that mutual uh, of the defense uh, initiative that they, they renewed to what 2030. Yeah. This puts an interesting weight into the U S the, the U S ways of thinking of policy in the administration. Yeah. Now you have the counter, which we could have used China as a counter. Or, I mean, um, used India to counter the PRC. Sure. And, <laughs> Freudian slip there. Um, <laughs> to, to counter them in, in a, in a potential, you know, arena. Yeah. Now the Russians just checked us in chess. You know, you know Tom, I'm, I'm going to throw in, and John's going to be able to weigh in on this one because we've seen this. I wouldn't be as concerned because it's still pol- it's, it's still called diplomatic politics as usual. You yeah. got to remember, India is the fourth largest in the world in everything. Yeah. Literally in everything. And everyone always forgets that India is the fourth large staff. If you talk to someone from India, they'll remind you very quickly of their role. But what are they doing? They're only doing stuff that's satisfying their own diplomatic ties. So a lot of times, so you have to think, though, how India is very smart on this. And John saw this firsthand. Sure, they will make a diplomatic deal with, say, Russia, with the PRC. But it's a very limited deal because then everything has to be made in India. So that's a lot of times when we're dealing it from the U.S. perspective that they were going to buy, say, military hardware from us or military gear. The first year it would come from us. The next year, everything's made in India. Um, So anytime what they're trying to do is you got to look at from the India perspective from India, they're doing a normal diplomatic deals we would do. But I I still feel that India alone is is not enamored by Russia. They certainly are not enamored by the PRC, but diplomatically, they're going to have to deal with it. But I think they're doing a lot better than the U.S. diplomatic issues are right now. And you're right. The the deal for this, the bill, the bill, the AK. uh, 203s are going to be in India, the whole thing, not even in the first year. So you're right. You you were correct in that statement. They were very smart and businesslike in making it a business deal that would would give them $500,000 in an investment inside India for that factory and and output. So yeah, that's a heck of a deal. You're right. They're, They're doing a lot better than we are on the worldwide arena. And I don't I don't know where we went off track somewhere. I mean, at one point we were the, we were it. And now it seems to be very, um, actually I have to say in the last, almost in the last decade, we have become almost silent on the worldwide front in a lot of ways compared to where we were 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, and, yeah. and you know, guys, both first enlisted in the military, um, you know, again, you guys had it was a different it was a different country. You know, Tom, you said something very foretelling. And, and, and again, too, I guess we're all young enough, but we do have relatives that are considered part of that great generation. And, and look who that great generation was. Everybody was in it to win it. Everybody. You didn't have to go and serve in uniform. You're still part of the defense production of the United States. And if you look at anything in four years, when you look at the production of how many aircraft, how many ships, how much ammunition, how much weaponry, tank, we produced as a nation. And again, it wasn't just everybody in uniform. I mean, it's the, the iconic images of Rosie the Riveter. It's, yeah. it's everyone went and contributed to this effort. The issue is now, if you look at our own manufacturers in the United States, well, one, are they in the United States? 
Two, what have we sold ourselves out to? How do we get better uh, businessmen to stop even giving away the farm with intellectual property? And these are U.S. business interests, you know, and, and, and we're just giving it away. And, and it makes it harder for these young men and women that John and I used to have the privilege to serve alongside. It's just going to make their fight that much tougher. Yeah, you're right. Because most companies are now NAFTA has, has created an interesting uh, climate for North America and the trade and with the auto industry, as well as much of the looking at the telecommunications. It's all most of it's, uh, you know, outsourced. I, I mean, that's one of the topics that you would thought would come up in an election about outsourcing because Americans don't have jobs anymore. It's outsourced to other countries. And you're right. There, there's where what is the, the men and women once they stop serving in the military, go out and get jobs in, in the in, in the rest of the when they're, when they're done, they will have a much tougher time with even with yeah. even though their education is beyond first class, they're going to have a tough time because of what what's you're right. What is there? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to get into here, uh, since we're talking about the military and everything, let's talk about. You know, but the the 400 pound gorilla in the room that could potentially blow up, blow us up into World War Three. And that's Taiwan. You know, Spuds, you took me to Taiwan in 2016. We spent a week down there with their armed forces. We went and saw the, the minister of defense and the chief of defense and everything. Um, and we've seen, you know, we have this one China policy and everything. And, you know, um, so can you talk us through the U.S.'s policy with Taiwan and then your thoughts on some of the provocative stuff the Chinese have been doing, especially lately with these 20, 30 aircraft flyovers and everything? Explain the policy first and then kind of talk about some of these provocative events. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. OK. To the folks out there and, and Tom, just a quick background, too. And, and John shouldn't be downplaying this, but but John, it really took when he worked for General Dunford and I was working for Admiral Ambassador Harris. They weren't allowed in Taiwan because of this. And I'm going to talk right. about this one China policy. They weren't allowed. And, and but here's the great thing. And I hope we could talk about this later, John, that that the trust that our our. Our, our leaders had in us that allowed two sergeants majors to make this historic venture to meet with the chief of staff of, of the Taiwanese defense forces there. Um, and it was pretty, it was through credit. And we had to go through a lot of uh, work beforehand. They wanted to make sure that we were going to write checks our asses and weren't going to cash when we were out there because we were <laughs> speaking on behalf of the U.S. government, not on for John Troxel, not on for, for, for Anthony Spadaro. We had to definitely represent that. So we had to get really familiar with this thing called the One China Policy. So the One China Policy really was an actual classified document up through the 1970s and or a little bit after around there, which said because now Taiwan was, you know, China wanted to always consider Taiwan part of, Ta of China. And, and in the 1950s, Taiwan just had it. And they said, no, you know, whether it was under some of the colonial rule, the colonial rule left. And, and they didn't want to be part of that system. They wanted to be a democratic nation, but they want to still be considered their China. So they broke away as the Republic of China. However, you had the emergence at that time of the People's Republic of China or mainland China, so to say, for people trying to look at the geography of it. Remember, Taiwan is just about a 60 miles away, island away from actual mainland China, just 60 miles off to the to the to the 
you know, south, right east, south, southeast right there of it. Yeah. Um, and, and China was mad. And, and when, when Taiwan did this breakaway, they launched what was considered, it wasn't considered, some people call it a civil war. It was a lot worse than that. And, and the devastation of they tried to pound them into submission. But, but due to the hardiness of the people from Taiwan, they said, no, we, we want to be a democratic nation. We do not want to fall under this communist ideology. No. This, and, and they fought back. Chiang Kai-shek, right? Yes. You know, and, 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 and under him is- Fighting that, against Chairman Miles. Forces, and said, right? no, yeah, I don't want yeah. to fall under communist ideology. I don't want my people slaves. I don't want them peasants. I want them to prosper. Well, we're talking about capitalism here, but are we allowed to say that? But that's what it was. <laughs> it, was, it, was it was a great look at capitalism does thrive. And, and, and yeah. when people want freedom, when people want individual freedoms, when people want to take care of one another and not have the oppressive control of a communist government, they broke away. Well, oh boy, the world stage was against it. So we said, how are we going to answer this? And they didn't want to recognize Taiwan as an independent nation, sadly. So we had to develop a, a policy in the U.S. because we fell to this, where we're going to call it the one China policy, where we're going to recognize Taiwan. We couldn't say it as the nation of Taiwan. We just had to recognize this as an independent entity of China or as the Republic of China, or we didn't even call it that. We called it Taiwan instead of its real name, Republic of China. Well, what happened, though, is the U.S. developed this Taiwan policy for this, or the one China policy to respond to the Taiwan, how we're going to support Taiwan, because the U.S. was actually only one of 17 other nations throughout the world that would render direct support, diplomatic relations with Taiwan, not direct diplomatic relations, since we don't have an embassy in Taiwan. We have an American, yeah, American Institute. Yeah. yeah. Notice the term American Institute. Institute. Yeah. Not an American embassy, which represents our interests there. However, we yeah. maintained very strong and enduring defense ties with Taiwan. So Taiwan would do a lot of their training, particularly their air forces, over in the U.S., a lot in Texas, a lot in Nevada. But because of the one China policy, whenever they would come to the U.S. to participate, they weren't allowed to wear their military uniforms, because, again, we couldn't recognize them as an independent nation. We could still advise. We just could not recognize. So that was the policy. It's 2021. That policy is still in effect today. What does that really mean for this defense of Taiwan that we still consider a very dear, important, close ally? Well, one, proximity to China. Two, it's a democratic nation. But three more importantly is these enduring defense ties that we've established with them throughout the years, where we're trying to let Taiwan know that, hey, it is good that someone's going to emphasize that freedom, that capitalism can prevail in this area. But more importantly, how do you defend yourself? Because when you look at this little island of Taiwan going against this, you know, it's, it's the old David and Goliath type deal. How does a David, you know, come back against a Goliath? Well, how do you make Taiwan think that they're one of that they're indigestible, that 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 they're just that they're ready? They're just a spike ball that anyone that's going to come after them, they're going to feel it. Well, China, they're still upset about this and, and, and they want Taiwan back the same way what they did to Hong Kong. 
My assessment, though, and this is based off, you know, when John and I got to go there in 2016 and, and I went back on, on subsequent visits, you know, seven more times there because it was important. Yeah. Um, this is what you got to look at Taiwan is it's not in China's best interest to go after Taiwan. It really would not be. Look at, you know, China's smart enough right now, folks. Look what happened when they went to Hong Kong. And, and on the world stage, they started to get embarrassed what they were doing in Hong Kong. The PRC in, in their ability to let the whole world think that they're really good people, it's not in their best long-term interest now to go after Taiwan and try to topple what is considered a democratic nation in that region. Because again, to the world stage, they would look bad. They're willing to wait. But I don't think we're going to see in the near term, when I say near term, five years or so, that sure, they're going to hassle them. They're going to make excursions over them. They're going to drive them that crazy. But are they actually going to do anything short of all out warfare? No. John, you've seen this. Now, you could also talk at length when your travels, when you saw all those operations other than war, just those trigger events. Yeah. That's what they're going to keep doing over there. I'm not going to deny that China is not going to sit there and try to be a burr, you know, to Taiwan. But as far as, you know, any type of direct confrontation with them, this is just an assessment, according to Spadaro. I don't think to President Xi, it's really in his long term interest to get the world stage to think that badly about him. So he doesn't want anybody to ask the weight of the emperor's cauldrons. No. Perfect. No, that's it. Siak. No, but that's it. You, you see yeah. that, you know, to, to the folks there, though, I mean, it was a historic move when, when John and I got to go to Taiwan for this visit. And, and as a result of it, John, I mean, look at the feather in your cap, what we grabbed out of that deal. Um, yeah, we, Tom, we met with the chairman, you know, General Dunford's counterpart. And, uh, you know, he was they were going from a conscription force to an all volunteer force. And he said, what do I need to do to get started? I said, well, you need a senior enlisted advisor. And based on that conversation we had, he selected uh, the army, the sergeant major of the army to be the first senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the uh, defense forces there. All right. So you, so you, you influenced the uh, foreign uh, military to, yeah. to uh, adopt well, he, something he, that, know, that works. <laughs> you know, but but yeah. Tom, I mean, Tom, I'm, we're sitting there in the meeting and, and here is the chairman of their defense force right there and, and literally looked right at John and he goes, what do I need to do? And, and John right out the gate said, well, you need a senior enlisted advisor. And he's like, and, and, and then he walked him through the steps and literally right there, he goes, you know, we get back home. We're, we're back home a week later. And he makes the announcement. And now, if you know anything, how, how time will move, especially with our friends in, 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 in the specific Pacific Island countries, you know, them to make a decision, it's it, you get slow rolled. Yeah. I mean, within a week, within a week, he made his decisions. I'm, I'm, I'm getting I'm calling John. Up, I mean, I'm calling John up in, early in the middle of the morning. You know what I mean? To wake up like you're not going to realize what I just heard that came across the wire. You did it, man. You did it. I mean, they made that decision. It was it was huge to us. That's, and it, it caused a domino huge. effect throughout the region, yeah. too. So with the um, with, with what all the rhetoric that's been going on with PRC, yeah. Japan's uh, very outward um, 
defense yes. of, yeah. uh, of Taiwan. What was it? Was that shocking that they no. that they came out? So how, how I say more, no, more no. public about it than, than they Man, really I'm made glad you, No, no. I'm glad you mentioned this about Japan. Um, this is what you have to look at Japan right now. Um, Japan is very smart as they're, they're almost evolutionary in its methods. You know, if you just look at the quick snapshot, you know, after world war two, you know, Japan was, you know, they, they did re with the rewrite of the constitution, it became, everything became a ground self-defense force, keyword self-defense force. And, And they stuck to that through the last, you know, 70 plus years. However, when you still had Prime Minister Abe in the seat and, and subsequent prime ministers now, they're trying to look at a relook at the Constitution because they're realizing the criticality is that being a self-defense force is just not going to cut it within the region. Still going to remember, though, Japan is constrained by its Constitution, which says you're a self-defense force. They're pushing it a little bit more. They are one of our most valued and, and allies in that area that they are ready for responsiveness. But their first look is internal to Japan. But when you do so wait, that, so let me see if I get this right. So let's yeah. say there's a Japanese carrier and a U.S. carrier in the Sea of Japan. Yeah. And a North Korean attack goes on to the U.S. carrier. Will the yeah. Japanese come to our um, rescue? Will they will will the Japanese see that as an attack on both of us? Or just an attack on the U.S. and the U.S. has to handle it. Yeah. Okay. Two ways to look at it. They could Based go on that self-defense force. Yeah. You could work on Article Five. You know, attack on one is attack on all. Yeah. And Japan's still part of NATO Article Five, so it could be a response yeah. based on that. But also, though, you have to remember the law of land. There's law of sea warfare too. If it's you're talking that proximity, depending how close we are to shores. They have to make that automatic response without gaining permission. Now, again, if by chance they were past certain geographical areas, you know that speed, especially, John, you served in Korea. You saw how long that churn of decision making of events would be. Would the delay be there? I would have to say, yeah because of just how we have these internal constraints right now built in. That's why they're trying to change somewhat that they can go past geographical distances and they won't have to go back to Tokyo to make a decision. But for, for now, if they're working in concert, you know, remember those different roles, those rules of, 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 of warfare would apply. Mm-hmm. They would have to respond. But now you do have to remember, folks, and, and John, you've heard me talk about this. We have to look at the whole Indo-Pacific The U.S. has seven mutual defense treaties that we are signed to. Five of them exist in the Indo-Pacific region. And one of those mutual defense agreements, the other two being very easy, NATO and and, and one with South America, just the defense. But five of these mutual defense treaties exist within the the Indo-Pacific. Mutual defense treaty saying that the president does not have to ask permission from Congress to make a, a reply if an attack happens on. So with our mutual defense agreements in Japan, Korea, uh, Thailand, the Philippines, and the one we have based with Australia, New Zealand, that area, the Angus yeah. one, we do have one with Taiwan. It's not part of the actual mutual defense because I would recognize Taiwan as an independent. But we do have a mutual defense agreement. If an attack on Taiwan, the U.S. has to respond. Back to your point to Tom and John here is that, again, you know, we have to respond to anything. John, you lived it. I lived it all too well. 
North Korea, what they're doing with their missile crisis. God forbid something happens over that sea of Japan and affects Japan. We have to, by law, respond. I think that's why Japan is shoring up any type of its coastal defense based on long range radars that they can employ within the area. They have to be responsive to this North Korea threat. Yeah. And North Korea is, and and, and see, North Korea is an extremely unstable looking at government wise. And I think John knows that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's an extremely unstable government. And in many, in many aspects from its leadership on down, uh, I mean, look at the defectors are trying to go over the the wall or the one guy was uh, what defected and uh, ran away for 40 days and then found in China. I mean, it's amazing that that country functions the way it does because of how well, like I said, everything starts at the top and rolls down and, and the top is, it's not the um, sharpest tool in the shed. So we <laughs> are trying to be nice, but ultimately I think though, you know, on, on the side of them, they have a large military. One, I think they're the fourth largest military or fourth or fifth, I mean, depending where they're placed in, in 2021, they're still South Korea still. I mean, there, this could be an interesting prospect. North Korea is an, is a, you know, a wild card. Yeah. You know, something started in Taiwan. Could something start in in South Korea and in keeping us, keeping us occupied on two fronts because North Korea could see an opportunity because could the, could the, their, their way of viewing is can the U S respond to two big threats at the same time? Well, I mean, I mean, John and John came up with a great math problem one time about the North Korea threat on the South Korean border. I hope he shares it. But again, <laughs> again that's where self-talk matters. But, you know, Tom, to your point, you know, how, how do we look at, you know, if something does occur in North Korea, what is the responsive responsiveness of the allies in the region? I think that's the big question now. How will everyone respond to any type of U.S. encroachment if North Korea does decide to flex. Does it decide to flex against South Korea? Does it does it have a mistake in their weapons testing that affects Japan, Guam? Name one of the areas. Australia. Um, what is that responsive in effort? You know, how's China going to play in this calculus? How's Russia going to play on this calculus? These are all three shared borders, um, and that, that's another debate and, and another argument. You know, where they see themselves involved. But John, do you want to throw that math question that we came up? I still remember we came up on that. That was December twenty seventh in two thousand. I think it was seventeen well, when we came yeah. up to that that math problem. So, Tom, you were talking about the size of the North Korean military. It's a one point one yeah. million. Yes. man and woman military, 750,000 of them are all along the demilitarized zone. And as I would what? go out and visit U.S. troops, you know, and, and rock troops, you know, and I would say, hey, look, to the U.S. troops, there's 28,500 troops there. And I said, if you do the math, 750,000 against 28,500, I only needed every American soldier to kill 30 North Koreans. And you've got 210 rounds, okay? I said, but uh, I said, here's the bottom line, though. Out of the 750,000 on the demilitarized zone, 50% of them were diagnosed as medically frail. They had not done combined arms maneuver in over 20 years, and their infantrymen fire about five to 10 uh, live rounds every year. Um, 
That's the good news. The bad news is there's 750,000 of them. So if you got 210 rounds, you better not miss when we go to war. So, yes. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> good point. And but the, the point in all of this is, uh, and you brought it up, Tom, could this be kind of an effect? If all of a sudden something goes down in Taiwan, will the North Koreans all of a sudden have, do an act of provocation? What will the China, or the, excuse me, the Japanese actually do in terms of what happens with Taiwan and what happens on the Korean Peninsula? And then from a U.S. perspective, Spuds, um, if all of a sudden we are find ourselves in North Korea, um, will we have to fight to the Yalu River and fight the, fight the Vladivostok? I mean, could potentially China and Russia both enter into a conflict there? And then let's say something does happen in Taiwan. What are the Russians going to be doing besides the adventurism that they're doing right now? Yeah. And we'll continue. Ukraine, to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, man, John, you and I have had this discussion a long time ago and we keep having this discussion. And, and you know, I'm, I'm still under the you know, I'm going on a limb here. I think any incursion into North Korea by anyone, everyone else is going to sit on the sidelines. And why? It, 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 they're just going to let us suffer it out because they don't want to waste it. They don't want to get themselves attached to it. Because remember, they're trying to win the world over. And they don't want to sit there and put themselves into something that's just going to be a slugfest. So don't, you know, everyone likes to say this is going to be 1950 revisited, where China is going to sit there and overwhelm through the Yalu, supporting North Korea in their defense of communism. That's disingenuous. What I really think well, we have. the Chinese allow a U.S. and South Korean presence north of Pyongyang? I would think so, because, again, who's going to foot that bill? And I don't think, you know, Beijing wants to foot that bill on how to sit there and recreate, revisit. You've seen Pyongyang. We looked at it over there. We saw that it's, it's, an, it's a wasteland, so to say. Who wants to invest in this? And I don't think it's in Beijing's best interest where they have all these other places in the world. And again, too, it's the competition for natural resources. I don't think Beijing wants to become the social welfare class of feeding all of those North Koreans that are going to be hungry right now. And they're going to make it South Korea suck that one up, thus depleting from South Korea. So now remember, nature abhors a vacuum. This would create a vacuum there that China could lay off and then they could place the blame and go, look how everyone suffer there. And if they only would have went on the auspices of communism, they would be happier and healthier and better. So I think they'd lay off yes. because they don't want to get the stink on them of being the bad guy. And the same thing with Russia. Russia cannot afford it. There's, let's look at what Russia now. John, you've seen this. Why did Russia yeah. go to Syria? It was for oil. They can't afford anything right now. So, again, it's not in their best yeah. interest. I, you know, again, Spadaro's opinion, I think they'd let us just fight it out. And then, again, of course, utilize negative press against us to a point that just made everyone look how bad they are. Look how bad they are. So I think we have to look at, too, they know how to manipulate the media quite well. That hackers and, and uh, yeah, and, and also I mean, think about this. The, the was looking at it from another perspective. Most of our children today are on the TikTok app, which is run by Chinese or the People's yeah. Republic. Or, I'm sorry, the PRC. So, which the, the the Communist Party in China runs that, and this is used mostly by most and mo most used users are in the United States. 
You know, you know, it, it, it's troubling, too. And I just got to get this off my chest. And I, and I kind of launched at John last week when he mentioned this, Tom. But I was really upset. You know, hey, I, I'm a Marine. And, and I was a little upset last week when I saw in the paper that China made a new movie about the Chosen Reservoir. Yeah. And they win. Now, now again, I, I got it where, you know, us Marines, were crazy. We think we created the world. But I, but I still have to look at objective history. And I, and, I, and I could see from an objective lens of history what happened at the Chosen. And I don't think China really won that battle. But they've made a movie now that's become very popular that's teaching the their number one number one movie in the country right now. OK, yeah, yeah. because it's China this? Chinese victory over the U.S., in, in the chosen reservoir. So that's what they're doing to their people. The same thing when we used to have that great president called Reagan, where it was America first. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. still have to look at an America first and I have to start talking about a boogeyman called the People's Republic of China. So looking at the, 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 the boogeyman, the hypersonic missile, the, the, this is the, the 500 or 1000 pound gorilla that we have not fully developed. So I'm thinking that most Americans are going, why as a country was where ours is the biggest or ours is the most advanced military on the planet to this point. And this country develops a weapon that we don't have and use and it don't have a defense for at the moment, which amazingly passed its test with flying colors kind of scarily. It, it, it did that. And what and then how could this change the dynamics of geopolitical politics played out in the Indo-Pacific uh, you know, command? <laughs> yes. All right. You know, I think <laughs> let's, let's let know. Yeah. OK, so I want to look at this incrementally because let's even go before hypersonics and, 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 and artificial intelligence or really it's, 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 it's really yeah. what's the driver behind the hypersonic. Let, let's go back chicken and the egg here. What came first? It's really the AI technologies and because and, and AI is allowing the hypersonic to actually work to a degree. So I think we have to start looking at, again, what have we've given away intellectually? What are we giving away for free that the technologies well, they stole Right. Yeah. Quite easily. You know what I mean? They're 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 I mean, look at the US universities. So I think we have a look there, but I want to go back to something that 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 John used to beat up on us a lot and literally beat up us on on uniform. And and, and again, too, and there's a point to this, and I and you'll see where it all fits in here. John had an old moniker of being, you know, he called it PME hard. And and and, and he wanted us how he had to be this, you know, physically, mentally, and emotionally hard. And this is as a people. Well, I really think because China was listening to him and the PLA, the People's Liberation <laughs> Army. No, no, no. And they jumped on this. And where I'm going with this, because we have the ancillary studies on this, is where they started to really harden the People's Liberation Armies and their Navy's soldiers and sailors because they're afraid of the U.S. threat, because we're looking, oh, they're crazy. They're working out. They're mentally, they're emotionally hard. They, well, they said, well, wait a minute, we can't match this. So they started doing illegal modifications to their Genetic people testing. That, yeah. that, that made the East Germans in 1972 look like good kids. Yeah. And they're doing yeah. it now because they're afraid of the threat. So my concern is, one, are we still pushing what John Troxell is pushing to us in uniform of being penny hard? Now, where do I go back to this? The hypersonics question. 
chicken and the egg incrementally you have to have rough and ready people ready to get into a fight and then you're going to be able to defeat these mechanisms so i keep hearing has hypersonics the soup of the day it's the soup du jour it's what's going on but then let's look at how we're trying to compete in space how we're trying to kind of compete in cyber hypersonics is just one thing that we have to look at but we're dismant we're, we're dismounting and forgetting about the competition for cyber the competition for space these are two other areas that we need to get footholds that we're woefully behind right now where China is putting the money. So you could threaten us all day with hypersonics, but if we have the other things, the componentry that goes into it, smarter on artificial intelligence, how do you get a better cyber force? You'll defeat the hypersonics of the world. So how we have to sit there and, and, and look at it as, as based off pillars of componentry of how we should look at it. But I'd still like to go to my brother used to push this on. And, you know, I said earlier too, a, a John Troxelism was validate your credentials. We even just yeah. made us old guys, but, but we were very popular on social media for that. You know, who was looking at that social media, the people's liberation army. Yeah. And they, and hey, they so know, social media. Yeah. yeah. I know we're getting down almost out of time, Tom. I got one yeah. last question for you. Fun. Yeah. I'm asking for your opinion, brother. Sure. A provocative act by China on Taiwan. How does the United States respond? I'm not your opinion how they should, but how do you think we will respond if, let's say, all of a sudden Chinese fighter jets attack targets on Taiwan? What do you think our response will be? Based on current administration, we're going to slow roll it and we're going to let Taiwan get hit pretty hard. Mm. I hate to say that. I, 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 yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I'm getting upset right now. I don't want to say that, but I'm looking yeah, yeah. at what the atmospherics are right now. And I don't think it'll be the proper response. And I'm so not trying think, to say. You think our response will be more in a diplomatic arena as opposed to. And, and we're going to um, let Taiwan get hurt and we're going to let Taiwan yeah. get hurt bad. And we're, and we're going to watch coastal defenses and that inward, that area that we visited be obliterated. That's oh, yes. going to be gone. In seconds. Yeah. And we're going to sit there and say, that's just the cost of diplomacy. And we're going to lose friends because of that. And you want to know what else we're going to do? The rest of the world's going to see that. And they're going to say the U.S. abandoned Taiwan. Yeah. If we, if we abandon Taiwan after what just happened in Afghanistan, the world, this, this will be basically pro, like pre-World War One for the United States in, in diplomatic yeah, so relations. around the world. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. That's why I'm, I'm hoping that she is balanced enough, though, John, that he will also see that the rest of the world will say that doesn't it doesn't forebode well for the PRC to do that type of attack because they're still suffering because what they did about Hong Kong, they're still looking what they did to the, the, the 90 million plus Uyghurs that are suffering. So I, right now, too, if you look at what Xi's going through country-wise, budgets all over the place, you know, the attention is actually internalized. So for him to externalize on, 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 a, on a Taiwan problem right now, I don't think it would make him look good on the world stage. If they were still in that meteoric rise that we've been watching the PRC on, I would say if you had to sit there and we had to go to the war room, attack, you know, close. Due to now to the internalized politics of what's going on within Beijing, I think we could look at it on a downward trend for now. That doesn't say, though, in five years, the entire calculus changes back. Yeah. Just, just well, an hey, assessment on the spot, bud. Yeah. 
Well, hey, brother, thanks uh, for coming on the show today, man. This has oh, been great. And, uh, you know, you, you've really shown what we talked about all the time, you know, as a senior enlisted leader, validating our credentials, that we could have the hard conversations. We could be a, uh, have a seat at the table and we could be a part of this. So thanks for being here as our guest today, brother. Oh, no. Hey, to both of you, it's a privilege, Tom, for you to, to get on a, and doing it. But again, I think we all we said this earlier. This is a civil discourse. Yeah. And that's what's important, that, that people can get together. And, and bravo, Zulu, for bringing who you have before that. But me being allowed in with this, this audience and again, you know, being with someone that pushed me to be here. So really, when you're looking at I, I got to give the, the, the kudos to John to pushing us, though, to be there. We have to be relevant. And that was his big question. Are we relevant? And you can say that to a lot of things that we're doing with this civil discourse. Is it relevant discussion so we can have a future? So again, I think if you're advising strategic level commanders and you're not part of those strategic level discussions, the tone of what you're getting after could be seen as tone deaf. And in the end, you could be irrelevant. So thanks for continuing to add to the relevancy of our greatest competitive advantage over any threat. Our non-commissioned officer and petty officer corps, brother. Thanks. Yeah. No, hey, it's a privilege. Like I said, it was a privilege to serve. It was a privilege, sir, foreign alongside you, and it, it, it remains a privilege. So, again, God bless you both what you're doing. Um, and let's just, like I said, let's go after the boogeyman. Yeah. Let's go stop the boogeyman. And also, um, John, you should probably send a bill to the uh, PRC for um, your idea and how they've uptaken it so that you can at least, you know, they can finance it the next adventure. <laughs> I think you could send them a bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should send one out to them. And again, thank you for for coming on the show and thank you for your, all your years of service. 35 years as a Marine is, isn't anything to sneeze at. So <laughs> thank you for that. A blast. No, guys, God bless. Thanks. God bless you, brother. Take care. We'll chat. Thanks, guys. Soon. We'll see us.